Hey, Slingers, welcome back to another week of the Word Slinger podcast. Now, could your family history be a source for your work? We're going to find out in this interview, so stick around. It's the Word Slinger podcast, where story matters. Build your brand, write your book, redefine who you are. It's all about the story here. What's yours now? Here's the guy who invented pants optional, Kevin Tomlinson, the word slinger. Word slinger. I am Kevin Tomlinson, the word slinger. I'm so glad you came around for another week of the Word Slinger podcast. Today I'm talking to author Jack Hirsch about his book, Death March Escape, which is based on the history he uncovered when he started looking into his father's life, who was uh, in concentration camps in uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, during World War II. Uh, this guy actually escaped these concentration camps not once but twice, and uh, Jack has, has dug into the details of that and found some pretty amazing history. Uh, I've actually, since this interview was recorded, I've actually read this book. It's fascinating. It's an interesting look into um, you know the life of someone who, who had to deal with this, this atrocity in our history. Um, I think it's kind of poignant, actually, uh, in light of things that are happening in the world today. And probably not the things you think, but we do have a really strong component of hate filling the world right now. Um, a story like this actually brings with it a lot of hope. So I'm not going to keep you from this. I think you're going to be interested in it. I know this is this takes a, a little darker shade than what we're used to in the Wordslinger podcast, uh, but we don't shy away from looking at things like this. I hope you enjoy this interview with Jack Hirsch. Hey, thanks for tuning in, sticking around through the intro. Uh, I'm glad to have you here. Now, I have a guest today. I already flubbed with this guest a number of times before we ever went on the air. So uh, that means this is going to be a really good show, Jack. So I'm um, talking to uh, Jack Hirsch, uh, who is a, I'm looking forward to talking about this. He's the author of Death March Escape, um, which is, uh, well, we'll get into the details of that book. But first of all, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome here. Um, so let's, let's first, let's line up. What, what is the book about? Tell the audience uh, what you've written about here. Well, it's, it's got two major stories. The first is my father's. My father was an 18 and 19 year old uh, teenager who spent a year in Nazi concentration camp. He was a Hungarian Jew who was deported in 1944. And in May, in April of 1945, he escaped twice close to the end of the war. The second time he escaped, he was hidden by a local family. The, the concentration camp was in Western Austria and a local Austrian family found him and hit him for the last three weeks of the war until the Americans came through. So one story is that. And the second story is my story of discovery of much about his story that he never told me. He, he liked telling the story about his survival in concentration camp and his escapes. But he left out important details that I think he thought was things I shouldn't know, didn't have to know, were too difficult to know or too difficult to tell. And I discovered those on my own long after my father had passed on. Um, and the book talks about that as well. And that's, um, and so you, you ended up going into kind of a research mode for your own father at that point then. That, that's exactly right. It was, I, I am actually something of a researcher for a living. And I actually used those skills to learn about aspects of my father's time in the concentration camp that he never told us. How did you, because I know that a lot of those records 
don't exist anymore. <laughs> uh, that there's a lot about uh, the people who were in the concentration camps that is very difficult to track down. Like what, what was your process for finding this, this information that he omitted from his own stories? Well, so the, the, the genesis of the, the, my search was that um, his photograph had shown up on the concentration camp's website in 2007. In 2007, I didn't know the concentration camp had a website. My father had died in 2001. Um, I, to say I wasn't interested is overstating it, but I wasn't looking. Um, and a cousin of mine had discovered that they have a website and that there's a photo of my dad on the website. It's a photo that I didn't have. So I reached out to them and asked them how they knew about, how they got the photo. And also there was a caption that described that he had been found by a local Austrian family and hidden. And I didn't know how they knew that either. I know my father never told them. Yeah. So that started this process of linking up with the curator of the, of the, the concentration camp is now a museum. So there's a curator there and they have guides there and they went out of their way to help me learn aspects of the story. We discovered that the people who hid them, they're no longer alive. They have a child right. who's no longer alive, but they have a grandson. He had details. For instance, there was a point when my father was being hidden. He was being hidden in their house and Upstairs, he was downstairs. Upstairs was a group of Nazi SS soldiers. My father had no idea. He never told us that. He never knew that. But years after he passed on, I discovered that while he was being hidden downstairs, they were being SS troops being billeted upstairs. It was a remarkable wow. piece of information <laughs> that I thought. Yeah, yeah that is remarkable. That's, uh, wow. That is, um, and I, I know there are a million stories like that, but it's just, it just still seems so, it, it, you wouldn't believe that story if it came up in a Hollywood picture, for example. I, I think that's exactly right. And then my father escaped twice, which, you know, there are the occasional story on the internet of people who escaped from one death march. He escaped, he was recaptured, he wasn't killed. Um, he was returned to the, my, my housing concentration camp where he started the death march. And about 10 days later on a new death march, he escaped again. Um, that turns, he turns out to be the only person that I can find um, in all of World War II who escaped from two death marches. Yeah, so I think I've picked up on why you felt this was a story worth writing. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's got, it's got all the things that make uh, an extraordinary, a, a story like that extraordinary. Um, so this must have been very difficult. I, well, I don't know. Was this a difficult thing for you to, to look into, knowing the history you know, behind it? That, that's a great question. Uh, uh, in the beginning, the answer to your question is no. I found it interesting. I found there, there was a, a distance that I kept. You know, I knew my father's story my whole life. As I said, he, he actually liked to tell the story, or as I would tell people, if you escaped from the Nazis twice, you'd be hmm. telling people. So he told the story. He particularly liked to tell the story on the Jewish holiday of Passover. Passover is the story, is, is the time we commemorate the Jews escaping from Egypt. Well, my father has his own escape story of escaping from the Nazis. Um, but the more I dug into his story, walking the grounds of the concentration camp, for instance, then it started to hit me. When I stood in front of a building called the Stone Crusher in his concentration camp, and the building is still there. The concentration camp actually, interestingly enough, is not there, but this building is. When I stood there and realized that 70 odd years earlier, my father stood on this same ground, weighing 80 or 90 pounds. This is a 160 pound, five foot 11 guy. Right. Um, and he had to work a 12 hour day, no matter the weather, no matter the day. 
uh, that then it hit me, uh, you know, combination of sadness and well, just it tugged at me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, I mean, how much of, of the story had your father really shared with you? I mean, how deep did his details go? He, his story, he told his story in an, in an interesting and engaging way. Um, yeah. it's the, so he certainly told about the escapes. Um, but of course, there's just no way to really explain how, how death-defying I think it was for him to bolt away from armed SS men right. in the instant they weren't, that they weren't looking. Um, it, it, an example of something that he didn't tell me, when he got to the concentration, when he left his hometown, he was sent first to Auschwitz. They, all the Jews were sent to Auschwitz, and 90% of them were killed within hours of arriving there. He was then sent four days later onto Mutthausen in a three-day train trip. When he arrived, Mutthausen is, is 1,500 feet up a hill. This is June. It was a very, very warm June. And they had a hike. This, it's about three-odd miles uphill after not eating for four days, after being in a broiling hot cattle car for four days. My father never said he had to do that. He said he got out of the, the, the cattle car and they had to take a shower. He never said, I got out of the cattle car, I walked three and a half miles uphill, and then we were put into these showers. Um, he just left it out. And it's conjecture as to why. Did he, did he not remember? Did he not want to remember? Did he not want me to know? And I think it's the last of that. Yeah, yeah. Or it could be a combination of those things, because I, I can imagine that would be very difficult to revisit. No, that's exactly right. I think for a lot of his, his, his um, history in the concentration camp, I think a lot of times he, didn't, he just didn't want to go back there. Yeah. So you, what kind of man was he after this, though? I mean, uh, well, that's a great question. It, 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 the kind of man he was is the kind of man that made me actually want to write the book. If, if mm -hmm. you hear about and read about concentration camp survivors, they tend to be painted with the same brush. They're right. morose. They're downbeat. They never crack a smile. They never tell a joke. Right. My father and the few friends that he had that were also survivors were interesting and funny and engaging. Um, my father could tell a joke with the best of them and liked to. Um, mm -hmm. He spoke nine languages fluently um, and could tell a joke in any of those languages. He was, he, you would have no idea that he spent 11 plus months of his life in a Nazi concentration camp if you were just getting to know him. Right. That's the kind of guy he was. Right. So definitely the kind of guy who wouldn't fill you in on all the gory details for sure. I think, I, as I learned, I think that's exactly right. And there was, but there was another piece of the book, which of course is my story and, and the fact that I never pushed him. Right. And he, would, he would describe something in the concentration camp and I would never take it down the road of what was that really like? How did that really make you feel? It just wasn't where I ever wanted to go. And I think now that he's passed on, that was a mistake. This is interesting to me because, um, you know, I, I grew up in a household of war veterans from all the major wars, really, uh, up to the point that I was born, um, U.S. wars. And, uh, you know, there's a, I, can, I can somewhat relate to not really having a strong interest in their experience, uh, but this seems like it would be just a completely different level. <laughs> and I, 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 I don't blame you for not being curious about it uh, at the time because it is sort of your old man telling you stories right? Everyone ignores their parents. Um, but uh, it does sound like you had kind of a personal uh, journey of discovery after the fact though, right? 
that, that's exactly what this book is about, in addition to my father's story. It is my, my story of discovery yeah. of all these aspects of the, his story that I didn't know, and then discovery of, of aspects about me and why I am the way I am, that I can, mm-hmm. I can draw a straight line between his experiences and my personality and some of the things that I do. But, but you know, just to go a little bit further than that, again, one of the motives for the book, and this, I didn't start out this way, but it occurred to me as I was getting close to the finish, is if people who read the book then feel compelled to go after their own parents' stories, mm-hmm. to try to connect their own personalities with their own parents. And it doesn't matter if your parent was a concentration camp survivor or a had been in a war or a war hero or a fireman or, or a homemaker or an accountant or, or a delivery driver. I, I just don't think it matters. They all have stories right. and we should learn what they are because we're partly the way we are because of those stories, I think. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's, it is not just their history. It's, a, it's part of our history. That's exactly right. Yeah. It, it makes us who we are. Right. So I'm very curious about, the methodology uh, because research is something I, I do quite a bit of research as part of my work. I know a lot of authors do um, and everybody sort of has a, a, an approach of their own. I'm constantly looking for ways to improve this. Uh, to me, this seems miraculous that you were able to track down the kind of details you did about your father's experience. Uh, what, what was the sort of methodology you used to get there? Well, the first step was to reach out to the concentration camp. Um, and I was a little lucky in that he was, he was a big deal to them. And I didn't, I didn't know this. When, so this town where he escaped, it was called Enns, E-N-N-S, okay. in Western Austria. Um, his story turns out to be the only story in the entire surrounding communities of someone who harbor, purposely harbored an escape prisoner or someone who escaped from a death march. And then the guys survived. There were a couple of people who had actually hidden them, but not in this town of Enns, 20, 30 miles away, but not in Enns and not anyone who survived the war. And so this town really, I think, looked to his story as a feel-good story, and rightly yeah. so. Um, and so they, were, they and the mayor of the town, um, the people attached to the concentration camp were very, very interested in helping me as much as they could. They tracked down the grandson who I eventually met. Um, They helped me piece together pieces of the story. When I found the two places that my father escaped the two times, all I had was my father's description of the escapes, not Mm. the description of the area. He never said that it was, it was, um, there was, there were fields and there were, none of that. He said, I made a right turn and I found the raincoat on the ground and I went with the refugees. He did Mm. say it was a big intersection and he said it was in the beginning of town. So all I had were these data points Working with the Munhausen guides and people from the mayor's office, we found where these two locations were. Um, so it was, in, from that sense, it was a little bit of tenacity. But to take it a little further, for instance, after his first escape, he was taken to a local police station, or right. where they call it a gendarmerie, gendarme in, the, yeah. in Europe, a little bit like a state police or right. a national police. Um, the gendarme there was unquestionably in his 50s or 60s, because if he was younger, he would have been a soldier. My mm-hmm. father doesn't know his name. I reached out to the Austrian Federal Police, who are now the, the, um, they, they're the follow-on to the gendarmerie. Um, they helped me a little bit, but then it went cold. And yeah. they said that there was no records of, of who the police, the gendarmerie were 
in the gendarmes, I'm sorry, were in April of 1945. I'm not sure I totally believe that, right. but it was a brick wall and I couldn't go any further. So that's the sort of thing I did to learn all I could about my father's experience. How cooperative uh, were the people you encountered when you when you traveled to find this information? Remarkably so. Other than I said, as, as I said, the, even the Austrian Federal Police helped me up to a point. And, I, and right. for all I know, they're right, that they, they didn't have the records. But the people in town, the people attached to Mutthausen did all they could to help me learn all I could find out. Yeah. Do you, I mean, was there a sense that there was a sort of, did they feel obligated to do that? I mean, was there, what, what do you think was motivating them? I think there was a, a catharsis to it, uh -huh. I think in part. Um, I think in part, you know, look, the people who work at Mutthausen, it's called Mutthausen Memorial now. The people okay. who work there, they're almost exclusively not Jewish. Mutthausen was not a quote unquote Jewish concentration camp. Um, and there weren't very many Jews there. These people have taken it upon themselves to make sure the world doesn't forget what happened, period, end of story. Hmm. And so to the extent that they, they knew they were helping someone who was working on a book. Uh, at first, I didn't know I was going to work on a book, but it was clear to me early on that I need to put this down in writing. Right. So knowing that there was, there was an end game here really made them work pretty hard to help me uncover the, you know, turn over the rocks that I, I was trying to turn over. Yeah. Wow. That's um, remarkable. <laughs> uh, so was all the research, I mean, everything that you did, was it primarily there in that region or did you uh, have anything stateside that, that you had to go through? Well, the stateside research was really the internet. Um, okay. There was a point when my father was in the hospital, he spent 18 months in a hospital after the war. He has a few photographs from his time in the hospital. And one of them was signed by uh, an American officer. Um, okay. And I tried to track him down. I actually found his obituary. He died uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, I can't remember when, but a number of years ago. And there was a listing of some of his relatives. And I... I hit up Facebook, every single person with a name remotely close to it. I got a couple of people who wrote me back and said, no, it's not them. And that was, that was a, a dead end there. Um, I lost my trend of thought on this question. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I, I, one thing I'm curious about, um, so this, your line of work, and I, I'm going to read from your bio a little here and uh, you can you can finesse and correct me as I go but it says you're a strategic advisor to corporate management and investment institutions uh, and have served as a corporate board member how does that experience tie in with the experience of uh, researching and producing this book well I think to be good at what I do you have to be methodical you have to you have to be good with numbers obviously yeah. what I'm doing is not numbers based, but you have to be good at, at getting to the bottom line to understand with companies in trouble, the, the key to investing in them or the key to advising them is understanding what's gone wrong and then beginning to formulate met paths that would get them either to be fixed or if they can't be fixed uh, and liquidated to try to understand what they might be worth to the investment community. Well, yeah. it's that kind of skill applied differently that uh, that I had to use to try to learn my father's story. You know, what I had was his words. What I had was, you know, the basics. It was a question of getting underneath the hood and mm -hmm. understanding what was really there, talking to people or doing research to try to understand what, what might really be there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'll, I'll give you an, an interesting example that, uh, that uh, tied in a lot of my skills. 
Um, then about five days after my father was found by this family and was hiding in their house, he told them that they had to send him to a barn in their field. And the reason was he to they told him, it was a husband and wife, they told him that it was because they were then being required to billet SS troops. But it, and that's the story my father said. But as I told you earlier, they, they had SS troops in the house all the way through. It turns out what was really happening is the fighting was getting close and a friend of theirs who happened to be a gendarme, not the same one, had warned them about the fact that they were harboring my father, move him out to one of their barns. And they, they didn't, they owned a barn. They were not farmers, but they lived in a farm community. He was actually a brick mason and he had a small brick mason company. The night my father went to this barn in the field, he got lost. Now, my father doesn't know how he got lost. He, you know, you'd ask him every time and he'd shrug his shoulders and say, how does anybody get lost? And he's 18 years or 19 years old. It's pitch black because there's a blackout, it's a wartime blackout. Um, it was cloudy out, so the moon would be no help. Um, it, it was as dark as dark gets. But I went to Google Earth and I could see the house and I could see exactly where they were. And if, when he walked out the house, if he went right, he goes less than a quarter of a mile and he gets to a main road. In fact, it was the main road that he had been on the death march. He's not going right because it, it's then had, it had heavy military traffic at that time of, of the war. Right. If he went left, he went 100 yards. And again, you could see this on Google Earth. If he went left, he hit another intersection. If he went left again, I could see barns. If he went right, there was nothing but thousands and thousands of acres of, or hundreds certainly, of acres of field. Um, and it's obvious to me he went right. When I actually got there, I tried to mimic at night what he did. And not only did I find that if I went right, I was thoroughly lost, I found that if I tried to dig myself out of being lost, I hit a stream. And my father spent a week by a stream. And there's no question in my mind that I stumbled on exactly where my father hid for that's, nearly that's a week in the field by simply retracing his steps. Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it was. It's, a, it's like you've done a uh, sort of forensics breakdown of your father's stories and then, you know, put yourself into that environment and, and literally walked in, in the path that he walked. That's really I, cool. I, I did. And then the trick, of course, was to try to describe it in a way that was understandable um, and I, I think I succeeded. Did you already know you were going to write the book when you made the trip? Not the first time. No. Okay. Um, when I first went, I was pretty much of the, uh, of the, the point of view that I, I just needed to understand this story better. Yeah. And while I was there, it was clear to me that I needed to put this down in writing. Um, I, I, I do write on occasion, um, in my, in my life as a researcher. Right. Um, I, I, no, I have a little bit of writing talent. I guess it's up to the, the people who read my book to decide how little is little or how much is a, is a lot. Right. Uh, Did you, uh, is this, uh, you went through a publisher for this book, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah. My publisher is, is based in the United Kingdom. They're called Frontline. Um, okay. It's a big military publisher. Yeah, I actually, actually. Uh, have worked with those guys uh, in a different capacity in the past. So that's... Yeah, front, yeah, Frontline's owned by Pen and Sword, and they're the ones that are, that are that's the name that's particularly well known. Yeah. Um, okay, so you uh, you realized you had to write this down. How different was the experience of of writing this versus writing, you know, a white paper or anything else that you might have produced in your professional uh, career? 
um, at first it felt not very different because it was, I was just sort of putting the facts down, but you know, the more I worked on it, the more I realized this is not about the facts. This is about the feelings and the emotions. Right. Um, right. I don't tend to put feelings and emotions down uh, when I'm trying to describe why you should or shouldn't make an investment. But, right. um, but when it comes to the story of my father, and then as I connected that to my own story, um, I think the real value was digging down into what I felt or what my father must have felt or, or, or at times what my father did feel because he said what he felt on occasion. Um, that was where the rubber met the road in, in writing the book, I think. And, and that was the big challenge. Did you recount the, uh, the parallels, uh, you know, your walk to the barn versus your father's walk to the barn? Did you uh, draw those comparisons in the book? Uh, Oh yeah. In fact, so I, I, the way the book is actually written is there are two, there are, there's actually three threads, but the, for instance, my father told, as I said, told the story all the time on Passover. In this book, he actually tells the story on Passover. He tells the story as he normally would tell it. Mm -hmm. But so I'd have a chapter of him telling a piece and then I'd have a chapter about me being there in the concentration camp or on the road in the death march right. or at the intersection where he escaped the first time or at the bushes and trees where he escaped the second time. And so you go back and forth between him telling the story and me reliving the story. Right. Th there's a third thread that I should just mention. So my father was found by soldiers of the 65th Infantry Division. Um, they were part of Patton's Third Army. They came in to the town of Enns at 1045 at night on May the 5th. On May the 6th, my father went into the town square and met a medic. Uh, I mean, just he ran into a medic, uh, and not, it wasn't purposeful, uh, of the 65th. Um, and so I described the 65th journey from Normandy, actually from Mississippi, into Normandy, uh, where they, they actually landed in Le Havre, um, all the way to the town of Venice. Wow. Wow. That's... Uh... A lot of strings to pull together. <laughs> there are, and I'd, I'd yeah. like to believe that, that the reader follows them succinctly, but uh, I think sure. I think they do. Yeah, I mean, I I I only I've only so far gotten to read the first couple of chapters of your book, and I apologize for that. But that's the way that worked out. But I've so far it's written very well, and uh, I've enjoyed it. So, and it is definitely going to be finished. My wife is also interested in it. So, <laughs> thank you. We're reading a lot about that um, era right now for various reasons, some of which is, you know, for my own book. So your book kind of ended up folding in as a little bit of research for something else I'm writing. So oh, interesting. That's good. Yeah. So uh, well, feel free to feel free to reach me offline. Well, if I yeah, 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 exactly. That's a good idea. I'll have to reach out. So well, we're kind of coming up on uh, the end of the interview. So I want to make sure we talk about where people can find you sure. and the work. Uh, where, sure. where can people find you online? Well, I'm at Facebook. Um, and you can actually write me from the book's website, which is deathmarchescape.com. Okay. My father has a website. The, the deathmarchescape.com actually links to my father's website. Um, my father's website is David Hirsch, and Hirsch is H-E-R-S-C-H.com. And both of them have, have um, memo or contact pages, and you can leave me a message, and I'll write you back. Okay, that's perfect. Um, I think people are going to be very curious about all of this. And I, it's very interesting how you, you know, clearly you, you experienced some growth as you were looking at this. Uh, that's, I think, one of the things I, 
everything about this is very interesting, but I'm personally very interested in your journey uh, as you discover that connection with your father and, and dig deeper into it. So very well and the, the, the book does spend a fair amount of time making that connection from how I started my journey and the, the kind of person I was and, yeah. and where I end up, you know, in the field, having, having walked my father's steps and recognizing things about myself that I just didn't know. before. Well, and in that way, you, you are us, the reader, uh, because a lot of us, you know, we're so disconnected from that story. Uh, it happened, yeah. you know, a generation or two before we were born. It, it's something we know about mostly from the way it's portrayed in media and, and uh, in other books. But I mean, it's not something we think of as, in a, as a personal story. So we get to follow you as you connect the dots on that and make it personal. So that's correct. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, uh, introduce us to your father and introduce us to this this uh, very fascinating story. Um, I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. And everybody else, if, uh, if you'll stick around, you're probably going to hear something interesting uh, after this interview. Right now, you're probably hearing the groovy theme music. You can dance in place at will, and I'm okay with that if you are. So stick around after the break, and I'll see you on the other side. Hear your book the way it was meant to be heard with a fully custom soundtrack based on your material, an album of music that perfectly fits your characters, your settings. Hear your book today. Sonatainscribe.com. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jack Hirsch. Uh, I, I took a lot out of that uh, in a couple of ways, and I was really impressed with uh, just sort of the drive to go back and look at Jack's personal history, his father's history, these stories that he'd heard his whole life. And, of course, you know, you hear this stuff from your family all the time. I think we overlook the value of what we can learn from uh, our parents and grandparents. Um, I, I actually had the privilege of knowing some really amazing people who served in World War II, uh, who served in the Korean War, uh, really a lot of the American Wars. Uh, I even knew someone who served in the Civil War, uh, so <laughs> which is pretty uh, impressive. Uh, but the, the idea here is that you've got um, a wealth of opportunity when you go out and look for these stories that are right there in your own family, right there in your own backyard. If you are, uh, depending on what you write, um, really, I think no matter what you write, no matter what you write, going and learning these stories and uh, the perspectives of these people is going to be valuable to you. I had a conversation recently with someone, um, this idea that, you know, someone asked what you read. And, uh, you know, do you read in your genre? This was on Facebook. And it led to some conversations on the side. But um, I, I read in my genre, but I also read very widely. I read everything I can get my hands on, honestly. Um, stories of all types. Now, I, I do have one limit. And that is I read good stuff. Uh, I don't buy into this. Um, it's a sort of philosophy that uh, some people have have pushed out there that you you should read the good and the bad so that you know what's bad. You know, you can figure out why it's bad. I don't really believe that. I don't really think that's a good idea. I think the more you expose yourself to something, the more you're going to uh, incorporate it. It's that, uh, it's that neuroscience thing that, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. <laughs> so if you're looking at really poorly written work all the time, um, I feel like you're just going to train yourself 
to write poorly uh, written work. I mean, that's just the way I see it. So, um, and I could be wrong about that. I'm no neuroscientist. I'm an amateur, uh, not neuroscientist. We're not going to say that. I'm just an amateur student of of uh, how people work, <laughs> how we think. Um, so this uh, this idea of going and looking at well-written fiction, well-written nonfiction, uh, as often as possible, I think is very valuable to you as a, as a writer. You should expose yourself to as much great writing as you can in as many genres as you can. Because uh, one, one of the things I said in, the, in my response to the Facebook post is that I, I write about characters. I write about human beings. Uh, regardless of the scenario they find themselves in within my story, they have histories. They have a background of their own. And uh, if I'm only drawing on my own personal experience, and I'm only, or I'm only, you know, maybe drawing on uh, the types of fiction I read, uh, if I'm only reading thrillers, for example, then my perspective may be a little limited. But if I'm also reading, you know, the occasional romance novel, the occasional sci-fi novel, histories and biographies. Um, you know, uh, non-genre fiction, literary fiction. Uh, if I if I'm if I'm reading as much as I can, as widely as I can, then I've got a whole bunch of lifetimes and experiences to bring to the plate. So it enriches the writing. So that's my that's a tip. Uh, if you want better characters, better characterization, and a better grip on dialogue, read outside your genre as much as you read in. You should definitely read books in your genre. Because that teaches you the uh, the tropes, it teaches you sort of the rhythms of this work, it teaches you the kind of things that the readers are going to expect, and you do want to meet those reader expectations as as much as possible. Um, but you want to also fold in uh, something that's going to make your work stand out, a better voice, a richer, deeper voice, and this is how you do it. You practice this by reading as much as you can, as widely as you can. So... Those are my tips. Uh, getting to the idea of uh, digging in on family history and that sort of thing, um, I think you should have as many conversations as you can with the people in your life. And if this is a good excuse, then use it. But uh, you know, not every word of everything someone says is going to become research for a book. But you never know what's going to lead to where. I mean, you never know what kind of ideas will be sparked by these conversations. But it also has, there's a human human component to this that I just frankly think is necessary in the world, especially today, which is, you know, we're connecting with each other. Writers do this. This is what we do for a living. We connect with other human beings. We, we have a sort of telepathy that we put out there, right? Um, we write our thoughts down onto a, a page, however that page may be presented. And that page is then read by a reader who is now thinking our thoughts. So uh, there, you cannot deny the human connection in what we do. And the more human you make this stuff, the more it's going to resonate with people, the faster you'll reach your goals as an author. So it's not about profitability. It's about people. Um, and profit is a result of good communication, <laughs> providing people with something that they find uh, valuable enough to uh, to trade their dollars for and their time for. So <clears throat> that's, um, uh, that's, that's my take on this interview. Um, Jack was a great guest, and I'm, I'm happy to have had him on. Things that are going on in the wordslinger world right now. Um, so I'm 
freshly back from a couple of conferences. I got some more coming up. I'll be in Oklahoma for the Oklahoma Christian Writers Conference. Um, I'm going to do a little double duty there and go spend a week with uh, the draft digital folks. So that's always fun. Um, and I'm hoping it's warmer because <laughs> it's been very cold. Uh, and I don't. I've come to discover that I don't like the cold. Uh, I've come to discover a lot of things that I don't actually like that I, I never questioned before. I don't like rain. I don't like storms. <laughs> uh, I understand it's necessary. I'm grateful for rain. I'm appreciative of rain. Uh, and I appreciate that people have a sort of love affair with um, rainstorms and, and thunder and lightning. I do not like it. Uh, <laughs> this is something my wife and I have come to discover because she loves the sound of rain, the smell of rain. Uh, she's she's all about getting cozy on a rainy day. I cannot stand it. I don't want to be uh, limited in any way, so I can't go outside <laughs> when it's raining. I can't just have a normal walk. I can't just, you know, everything becomes more difficult. I got to convince my dog to go out because she does not like the rain. Um so, yeah, I'm not a fan. <laughs> Is that weird? And I also had a conversation on Facebook today, thanks to Michael Bunker and Jim Butcher, who weighed in, because uh, I had made a comment about, uh, Jim, uh, Michael posted something about uh, humanity, we're, we're too good for this, or we're better than this, or something, uh, and how he thinks that that's not, not a true statement, which I agree with. <laughs> think that we've proven we are not better than anything really uh we as a species tend to do some pretty wretched things um but i made a cantankerous statement that i actually now um think was maybe not quite accurate because i i have a i had a view at the moment of humanity being a sort of horror and atrocity uh as a species whereas people individuals and communities can be good humanity is a horror I said um, Jim Butcher weighed in on that, saying that he didn't believe that was true. And I think I agree. I don't think humanity is a horror. Um, so I'm sorry about that. But I do think that some pretty horrible things have been happening lately. Some pretty horrible things have been uh, pushed through in uh, laws, state laws and that sort of thing. I'm not going to go into them because uh, I don't want I don't want to I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't want to hear from people justifying horror. I just don't. Uh, so, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so, we got that stuff going on in March. March is a good month for me so far. I haven't even started yet, technically, for me. Uh, today is the 28th, so you're, if you're hearing this on March 1st, um, um, you're a day ahead of me. Uh, but <laughs> I am. Uh, it's already looking like it's going to be a good month. February was a good month. Financially a good month. Uh, book sales were great. Um, so the things that I'm doing, and I had a whole, I did an interview with uh, Johnny Andrews on his, he's doing a summit. Um, I chatted with him and he was asking, you know, he asked me some pretty interesting questions. One of them was how I managed to keep everything going, how I do what I do, the amount of stuff that I do. Um, and it's a combination of things for me. Uh, I use my calendar for everything. Everything goes on the calendar. If it's not on the calendar, it doesn't exist. Um, I use, I've started recently using Trello, which I've told you about in the past. Trello helps me organize all the different silos of my life. And I have a, um, what I call my to-do slash task list, which has uh, basically a bucket for everything 
every silo of my life. So there's my personal bucket, family, does get combined, personal and family, um, the author bucket, the wordslinger bucket, draft to digital, um, and written world, which is the overall um, business from, you know, that I operate. And um, that oh, written world owns everything else that I do that isn't draft to digital. <laughs> so <clears throat> there's all those silos. And then I have a, um, a task list, which is uh, my what I call my focus list. So it's not a to-do for today or anything like that. It used to be, but I've changed it. It's, it is, this is my, these are the things I am prioritizing over everything else. So um, these are the things I do first. And then I've got the buckets with all the ideas for things I need to do, tasks that need to be achieved. And you can put dates on these, due dates on all these. You can attach reminders. You can use labels. Um, there's all kinds of ways to to utilize Trello. And I, I highly recommend checking it out if you if you can. It's actually a, a, a fairly powerful task management tool. But, um, and I've talked about all this before, but so that's how I keep my keep things on track as far as what I do and how I stay productive. Um, you know, of course, I write every day. That's that's a discipline. Uh, so I don't have to stay on track with that. I just have to stay within the discipline. I've already established what it is, so I just have to get up every day and do it. And because I do it as part of my daily routine, um, it's just something I do, like brushing my teeth, you know, taking a shower, you know doing some reading <laughs> quote unquote <laughs> while in the while in the bathroom <laughs> uh which is my favorite place to read i know not everyone thinks this way my wife hates this idea but i like to read in there because i'm far less likely to be bothered while i'm in there um so there's all that and uh, that's that's how things are going uh as far as the uh how i manage my time the uh, the other questions were, you know, we started talking about questions of marketing, uh, platform building, and that sort of thing. Um, when I was at San Francisco Writers Conference, I attended one of the one of the panels. I ended up attending. I wasn't a guest on it, but it was um, it was about building your platform. One of the people who spoke on that, I've actually interviewed her. I interviewed her yesterday. Uh, her name is Ann Janzer. She's mostly a, a, a nonfiction writer and a copywriter. So we have very similar uh, backgrounds, career backgrounds. But one of the things she said, and I stole this, and I, I credit her, but I still stole it. She has a guiding principle. I'm reading it off of a list to my right. So if you see me looking down on YouTube, that's this is what I'm doing. But her guiding principle is be generous and strategic. And that and is italicized uh, so that you we know that she means... Both these things need to be considerations. You should be generous with your time, with what you produce, but you need to be strategic about that generosity. Um, this is why it's okay to occasionally write something for free for a publication, even if that publication is has you know, could have a budget to pay you. So, for example, um, Will Wheaton got irate with Huffington Post because they asked for uh, they asked him to write a piece, and uh, they wouldn't pay him. They wouldn't pay him for it. They told him up front they wouldn't pay him. Uh, he got very irate, raised raised the issue, which I agreed with um, at first, and now I'm reconsidering. And the issue was um, writers need to be paid for their work, and I agree 100%. 
I'm a writer. I want to get paid. <laughs> um, but I also, I also know that writing, uh, is one of those careers where if you haven't proven yourself yet, if you haven't created a body of work yet, then you, you have less credibility and people are less willing to take a risk on you. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think Huffington Post probably does have the budget to pay their writers, especially the, the bigger name contributors. Um, because I, I also don't buy into this, you know, you, if you make lots of money elsewhere, you know, you should be happy enough to give away your time. That's just ridiculous <laughs> to give away your time and work, um, uh, because you can take the hit. That's a, that's your choice to make, but someone should probably offer you money for the work. Um, because you've proven yourself. If you haven't proven yourself, doing some free work is a way to build up a, a portfolio and a way to, uh, uh, to gain some, some credibility. And, uh, it's, I'm, you know, I, I, I recognize how, uh, challenging that can be for some folks, especially if you're getting into writing, hoping to make a living from it right away. Uh, and you got nothing else going on. Uh, I understand I, I was there, you know, I, I spent years building a writing career, trying to make money off of my, uh, my skills and my craft, um, until I really kind of cracked the code on finding clients. The, the code, by the way, was show them that you can do the work. It really comes down to that. <laughs> now I'm talking about copywriting and maybe journalism, freelance stuff, um, but the same applies when you're trying to attract readers, when you're trying to attract uh, people to buy your customers for your books or, uh, or, or whatever it is you're producing. You know, you, you have to show them that you are reliable. You have to show them that you have some credibility in this industry. You know, we indie authors love to throw around the phrase that we are free of gatekeepers. And that would be the uh, agents and editors, uh, the publishers who tell us, whether or not we're worthy to, uh, to be promoted to their audience. Um, you know, we like to build our own platform and have our own audience and be free of that. But even when we're building our own platform, we still have to show these people that we are someone they can trust. Uh, we have to build a relationship and that's the cost of doing business here. And a lot of that means giving stuff away for free. We don't bat an eye when, uh, or some people do, but we don't, we tend not to bat an eye when someone says, you know, you should create something free to give to readers who get on your mailing list. Um, I agree with this philosophy. I don't think it should be one of your books. I've changed my mind on that over the years. I used to give a, one of my books away for free, but now I don't do that. Um, now, because those books have a market value and I think readers, um, are okay with paying for that. But the the stuff that leads people into what they call your funnel, your marketing funnel, that stuff is extra. Um, and you got to stop thinking of it as being free. It's free to them. For you, uh, you're, you are being paid with something other than dollars. You're being paid with a new relationship that you can nurture, a new friendship, okay, or a new a new possible customer, you know, what you've got is opportunity. You're being paid in opportunities. And the opportunity is um, every person who gets on your list is a potential book sale. And if they're a potential book sale, they could be a potential uh, read-through sale. 
So if you've got a series, uh, you know, you can start figuring out what each person on your list is is worth in dollars uh, by gauging how many books they they will read in your series. You know, do they tend to read through? Do they tend to buy the next book in the series? And uh, that's uh, that's how you're getting paid. So in terms of like giving free work away, doing guest blog posts, for example, or doing a post on Medium or on uh, Huffington Post or or elsewhere, um, the what you're being paid is um, discoverability and, and exposure. And the joke is, you know, I can't pay my rent with exposure. That's true. <laughs> I agree with you. You cannot pay by exposure. But this is where the second half of Anne's uh, comment comes in. Because you are being generous, but you also have to be strategic. So, you can't pay your rent with exposure. Absolutely true. But what you can do is pay your rent with money that comes from that exposure. So if you're being strategic about how you produce this content and give it away, then that can lead to income. Um, some of the things I had recommended on this interview with Johnny. Uh, I stole a couple of these from Ann. Uh, one, of the, one of the ones I stole from her was uh, blog content. Okay, now I've been really poor about my blog in the past. Now I'm working on a whole new thing now. Uh, I will return to blogging. It's almost, I'm almost ready to do it actually. And I may just pull the trigger a, a slight, slightly early. <laughs> uh, but the thing about blogging is, uh, you know, it has certain side benefits like, like search engine optimization. If you're using, if you're writing about your topic, let's say you're a nonfiction writer, you're writing about the topic you're an expert in, now you're generating keywords that may draw readers in uh, to your website as a resource, right? If you're a fiction writer, it's the same thing. Uh, you can write short stories, you can write excerpts, you know, uh, post excerpts from your novels, you can do that sort of thing. The keywords will start bringing people in. Um, what? But one thing you can do that Anne recommended, and I think is a very cool idea, is you can start writing book reviews and movie reviews that are tied to your, uh, this is for the fiction authors, but it could work for the nonfiction as well, but it's tied to your topic. So as an archaeological thriller writer, I might write reviews of Jim, uh, James Rowland's books, um, of uh, Clive Cussler's books, Ernest Dempsey and Nick Thacker, uh, people who are in this genre, other other archaeological thriller writers, right? And uh, you always want to make these positive. <laughs> so if you didn't like it, don't review it. Okay, you don't have to lie. Just don't do it. Don't use don't use negativity. Negativity doesn't bring you anything except more negativity, right? So um, write positive reviews. Share those reviews with the people. Um, you've reviewed, put them out there as far and wide as possible. Tag them on Twitter. If you have their email address, email them, go on their website, find their contact form, send them a link, always include a link, right? Now what this does in a couple of directions, <laughs> it's very helpful for you because, uh, one, you've got a whole bunch of blog posts now that are tied to the types of stuff that you read. So it's going to attract readers of that work. So if I'm a fan of of James Rollins and I, I click over to read a review of one of his books on your site and I see right there on the side or at the top or at the bottom a little call to action. Hey, I'm Kevin Tomlinson and I write archaeological thrillers. Check out my latest book, uh, The God Extinction. Click here to 
pre-order, right? So I, I may start to associate those Rollins novels with your novels, the stories with your stories, and now you become one of my authors, okay? Um, the other side benefit of this is the people that you write about, when you're writing nice, positive things, they tend to want to display those. But everyone likes good press. So if I'm writing about Ernest Dempsey's books, tell you how great those are, Ernie may just uh, put links to that stuff on his website and in his newsletter and send his readers my way. So go check out this review of my book on this website. And they get there, and there's my CPA. It says, God Extinction. It's available March 22nd. Go buy it. Go pre-order now. And uh, if they have a good vibe about Ernie and they like the review they just read, they may go buy that book. Um, is it a guarantee? No. But it's free marketing. <laughs> It's something that took you no more energy, effort, or time than to just read a book and write something nice about it. Um, and you should be reading anyway, right? And we already discussed you should read in your genre. You should read outside your genre. Uh, just find, Even if something is outside your genre, it, the readers of that may like your work. Uh, as a good, good example of this, you know, what I'm, something I'm doing now, <clears throat> I, uh, because I do a lot of research for my archaeological thrillers i have all this stuff in my head and i have notes and i have uh, all kinds of material and then when i read the book it's like what do i do with this stuff this stuff is not worthless but i mean it's not i'm not using it for anything anymore right so what you can do is uh, well here's what i'm doing um in with my mailing list i stopped all the fancy marketing stuff on my mailing list and uh, I write a almost plain text uh, email. It has a little bit of formatting. I usually put a an image in a single image in there. Most of the time, it's like a cover for a book or something. And uh, so what I'm doing is I'm saying um, here is a fun fact, a fun historical fact that I learned in my research. And I write a short essay under. You know, like 1,500 to no more. I mean, I think 1,500 words is probably about, about right. 800 to 1,500 words. Um, you don't want to get super long in an email, but that you can push it when, you, when you're giving them something. The readers of my work like this stuff. As far as they're concerned, Dr. Dan Kotler is having a conversation with them about, you know, whatever this historical fact is. Um, so now I've written this essay. I send it to my list. They appreciate it. I tell them in every email, I say, hey, share this wide and far. You know, share this with family and friends. Anyone you think might be interested in history, um, you know, let them know that this exists. Tell them they can get a free book when they sign. Or free, yeah, it's free, free book. It's a short story, but I've, I've built a book. Um, I give it away for free to people who get on the list. They cannot get that book anywhere else. It's only available to people who sign up for my list. So, now you have um, this material. I'm a big fan of repurposing as much as possible. So, I'm taking this stuff and I'm uh, now it can be a blog post, right? So, that's a given. We already talked about blogging. As a blog post, it has value in that it can be words, search terms that people use to uh, and, and stumble across my website and come in, check out that blog post, maybe stick around, buy a book. I'm also creating a podcast around this material. So I read this essay 
I set some music to it. Uh, Nick Thacker has um, Sonata Inscribe. You've heard it advertised in this episode. Last week, we talked to him. Um, if you didn't hear the interview with him last week, uh, go check that out. Go search on wordslingerpodcast.com. Go search for Nick Thacker. He's the most interviewed guest on the show, I discovered. <laughs> but the most recent one is uh, using music, a musical score for your books. Um, he has that, that business, Sonata and Scribe. It's sonataandscribe.com. A-N-D, sonataandscribe.com. Um, he'll create an original musical score for your book or anything, any other project you approach him with. So he's doing musical scores for this podcast that I'm going to release. Um, so now I have a blog post. So I, let's let's go through what we've our assets so far. I have an email, so I have something that touches my list, that is interesting to my list, that might be interesting to people they know. So they share it with people they know. I evangelize my list by uh, by uh, asking them to go share. I have a blog post, which has search engine optimization value, SEO value, that uh, when people are searching for certain terms, they can they may stumble across my website. It increases the odds, which is what marketing is. Marketing is about increasing the odds that people will discover your work. Um, and then I turn that blog post into a podcast. So now I'm in a different medium and I'm reaching a different audience. The podcast will have both an audio and video version. The video version goes on YouTube and Facebook and anywhere else I, you know, I decide to place video. And that has its its discoverability. The audio version goes on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and everywhere that podcasts are uh, distributed. And that has its reach. So now you can see I've got, what, that's like four or five products out of this one effort. That's the way you should think. That's being strategic. So I'm being generous in that I'm giving that content away for free to my mailing list. But I'm being strategic in that I'm repurposing that content as many times as possible to reach as many people as possible. Um, this is how you need to think of everything. So don't don't fret if... Oh, I'm sorry about that, listeners. Um, don't fret if... You are, if you are asked to contribute content to a, uh, to a publication or, or to anything that has a high volume of readers, do not get offended. <laughs> Take it for what it is. It's an opportunity. You can publish that story. Because they're not paying you, make double sure that when you uh, read any contracts, any terms of service, any agreements about publishing that content, that you own that content as much as they do. They typically people negotiate first North American distribution rights or first world distribution rights. Um, so you need to make sure that that you understand the clauses in the contracts you sign or agreements you sign, and then you can reuse that content. If for some reason they lock you down and won't let you specifically reuse that content, fear not. Make sure you can put your uh, your bio, your short bio, usually under 150 words, uh, usually far less, 75 words or so. Um, make sure you have that. Make sure it has a link to your website and your name. And uh, if you're an author, it says, Kevin Tomlinson is a 
best-selling and award-winning thriller author. You can find everything about him at kevintumlinson.com. That's a general uh, bio, right? That's your you, you want your byline and you want your bio. Your byline is your name under the headline of the article. Your bio is the little blurb at the end of the article that tells people who you are and where they can find more about you. Um, so you want that at a minimum. But if they lock you down and they won't let you, you reuse that content anywhere, if they somehow they've, they now own copyright to that content, uh, then this is your opportunity to get creative. Rework that content. Reorganize it. Quote from it, link back to it. <laughs> this is something I think is hilarious, actually. Um, write a new article based on that one, and then reference that article when you post it. <laughs> link back to it. Because uh, if you're sending people, if you're sending traffic from your website to theirs, they'll take note. And they, they may actually help promote your stuff. It looks good for you. Google likes that sort of thing. They like, they like link juice, as, as we call it. They like to know that you're linking to relevant content so that users who stumble across your article go on to find more stuff. It makes things more valuable all around. So, um, you, you know, just quote from it. <laughs> Write a whole new article quote from it. And, uh, and now you've got two pieces of content out there on the same topic. And then you can take the new article, which you fully own, and you can start doing the same sorts of things. You can, you've got your email, your blog post, you can do a podcast or video, uh, you can do Instagram stories, you can do Facebook posts, you can do Twitter uh, stories, whatever, whatever you can think to do with this new content, go forth and do it. And, that, and always, always lead people right back to your author website. If you don't have an author website, there's a lot of ways to get one. A lot of free resources out there. Uh, uh, WordPress has a free site you can get. Uh, you can get a, a domain name for pretty cheap. Get yourname.com or yournameauthor.com or yournamewriter.com. Uh, if none of those will work, get yourname.net.us.me.whatever. Uh, but just your name is your brand. The name that you're publishing under. If you are... Using a pin name, uh, then buy that pin name as a .com somewhere. Uh, this way, you uh, when you're leading people back to this, it's it's it, a lot of this content is evergreen. It just sticks around forever. Well, evergreen. It, it some of it is evergreen. Some of it, the content itself goes out. You know, gets outdated. But the links may stick around forever. So if someone's out there and they have stumble across some article you wrote about um, Mayan tombs. And you are a thriller writer, and you say that in your bio, and they're intrigued enough to check you out. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, so that's that's kind of the whole nutshell of this thing. Uh, in terms of content marketing, this is to me this this concept, Anne's concept of. Uh, I'm going to talk about this again. I'm sure when I after the interview I did with her goes live, but uh, Anne's principle, her guiding principle of be generous and strategic. Uh, I think is exactly the right idea for authors. Well, that's Minnie. She's upset. <laughs> She's saying, you've gone on too long, Daddy. In the in this recording. <laughs> I think I'm going to do just that. I just want one quick final note. I, I think I've pretty much summed this up. But um, 
this is this is all I talked about building your platform. How this relates to building your platform uh, is uh, I just I've been reading Jane Friedman's book, uh, The Business of Being a Writer. I love how she sort of summarizes. I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember the exact phrase. Um, she summarizes your platform as your ability to uh, monetize your writing. So if you are a freelancer, a journalist, a copywriter, whatever, it's you know your ability to make money from the writing that you're doing. If you're a novelist, if you're a short story writer, it's your your ability to sell. Um, it's and it's how much, how many, uh, how much of an audience you can reach. Now, right? This is your platform right now. My platform is I've got uh, ten thousand people on a mailing list, or I've got uh, fifteen hundred people subscribed to my blog, or I've got um, uh, thirty thousand people listening to my podcast whatever that's part of your overall reach so that's part of your platform so it's the ability to monetize your writing and it's the amount of reach you have uh through various channels and you sum total all that you take i've got for this show there's like forty thousand downloads to this show each week uh there's you know a good fifty thousand people who read the drafted digital blog that i i'm I write that I produce. There's, uh, you know, I've got, I think, 2,000 people connected to me on Facebook. I've got, you know, 2,000 people connected to me on Twitter. I've got, you know, 9,000 people on LinkedIn for some reason. Uh, so I've got a platform. That's my reach. That's that's my potential. Uh, but the the real key to platform is how much of it can you monetize. And as a uh, on my personal mailing list, there's like 40,000 people on my mailing list. So if I uh, send out an email uh, p- pitching a new book, I can count on a certain percentage of that list buying the book. So that is my uh, that is my platform. You know, there's a lot of pieces. It all comes together. Uh, th- that's the thing. Platform is a weird thing. You can't strictly define it because it's not. It's not really. It doesn't have. It's not directly connected to. The number of social media followers you have, the mailing list size you have, the people who read your blog. It's not actually uh, demonstrable that way. It is more about potentials. It's an abstract kind of thing, <laughs> which is really frustrating to some people. But it, it just comes down to you can get into the ballpark of how many people can I reach with this and how many of those people are going to pay me for it. And that's how you figure out what your platform is and how, how big it is and what your reach is. Now, if you're going for a traditional contract, the, these numbers, you know, quantify these numbers as much as possible, and you use uh, social media following and list size and last month's sales and all that stuff, you know, that's to support the size of your platform. That's to demonstrate that your platform is likely this size, but it isn't. It isn't like a solid number. <laughs> I think I probably just muddied the waters on this. If you have questions, uh, why don't you just pop over to wordslingerpodcast.com and and ask me, and uh, I will answer as best I can. I'll probably put some more thought into it before I <laughs> respond. <laughs> Get on the show notes of this episode, and we'll, we'll talk about it. That is going to do it for this week's uh, Wordslinger Podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the interview with Jack Hirsch. Please go pick up his book. I think it's a moving story. It's a it's a kind of a thrilling story, and I think um, 
you'll benefit from it in a number of ways. So go check that out. Uh, you can find it at deathmarchescape.com or davidhirsch.com. You can find it either one of those places. Um, and if you are into archaeological thrillers, my new book, uh, The God Extinction, is releasing on March 22nd, which means it is available right now for $2.99 on pre-order. Uh, and uh, if you like that kind of stuff, if you like uh, Clive Cussler and Dan Brown and James Rollins, uh, you're going to like it. So go check it out. Um, pre-order that. And of course, I've got, a, I've got six more books ahead of that. And uh, you can get on my mailing list and get a free short story in that universe if you go to kevintumlinson.com. Go to kevintumlinson.com. Check out everything I'm doing there. <laughs> uh, I don't always follow my own advice. My blog isn't up and running yet. I, I re rebooted my blog. The new blog is just kind of sitting there waiting, waiting to run. Uh, I think I'm going to get started on that. And, uh, but you can see kind of some of the stuff I'm talking about. Some of the stuff I, I talk about as far as what I think are best practices. So hop over there, check it out. Let me know. Say hi. There's a contact button there, which you should have on your website. And uh, you can reach out and say hello. So that's it. Um, I hope you have a wonderful weekend and a wonderful week ahead. Uh, I hope you enjoyed March. I'm, I'm looking forward to March. Uh, got a lot of cool stuff going on. February was a great month. I think March is also going to be a great month. But take care of yourselves out there. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you all next time. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Wordslinger Podcast. Now, you can support this show by visiting wordslingerpodcast.com. That's where you're going to find back episodes, books by me, and links to anything and everything Wordslinger. And be sure to subscribe to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and anywhere else fine podcasts are sold. I'm Kevin Tomlinson. Thanks for tuning in. We'll check you next time. Wordslinger.